And we're back with another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. And today we are talking about type five. And today we have a guest, Sally Honest Andre. Sally, how's it going? It took you all of two seconds to forget and butcher that name, Tree. That's okay. Uh, I feel your pain. Yeah. I hear it. I do it all the time. Oh, man. So, Sally, where are you located? I am in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, very cool. Nice. We are, we're neighbors. I live, I live in uh, northern Indiana. Oh. I'm a transplant, recent transplant, and I live here because my kids are here. And where I lived before, there was no family. It was, there was not like I was rooted there in any way. And, and Sally, how do you know these other two jokers? Oh, that's a nice story. Um, I did, <laughs> this is my recollection. I did a, um, a session, I guess you call it, uh, at the IEA Global Conference about work I do with bringing Enneagram to people in generational and situational poverty. And mm. so Mario must have listened to something about that because then when we had a follow-up session, we were asked if we wanted to do a follow-up session, and I did mine like almost two years later, and he was on it. It was a Zoom call that IEA did, mm. and then he contacted me afterwards and said, hey, you know, there's similarity in how you have to change wording or language for the people that you work with, similar to me. Uh, so anyhow, he was so kind to kind of come alongside yeah. me and encourage me. And it was, and then I got to know Maria Jose through doing their certification po- program. You must feel honored, Sally, that she, he listened to your session. He doesn't <laughs> listen to many. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's more than honor, so, uh, you know? It's just a really rare thing that happened. So um, I did not see your session at the conference, uh, but uh, when not I saw that did, you guys were doing it, f- okay, yeah. um, uh, and and to Maria Jose's point, um, I don't get to many sessions. Uh, at You're, the very so You're very selective. You're very selective. I tend to be selective, and uh, uh, but when I saw the session you guys were doing online, the follow up session that you were talking about, I thought, oh, this looks interesting, and. Uh, uh, somebody doing something that feels worthwhile and, um, you, you know, seems to be making some sort of change in the world with the Enneagram. So it caught my attention and I did attend your live session. And in addition to being struck by the importance of the work that you're doing, I was struck by the similarity in needs of your audience and my audience, right, which are about, you know, societally about as far apart as you can get, but the need to keep things simple and clear and quick are exactly the same. So uh, that has to be pragmatic and useful. So I really became interested in the work that you're doing and uh, wanted to contact you. Well, let's let's not leave the audience in suspense any longer. Sally, what are the people? Who are the people that you do work with? Well, I, I do work with lots of different people, but the, the thing is, when I um, got certified to teach the Enneagram, I had been uh, in private practice. I was a therapist for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I wanted 
I didn't know this, but I wanted to transition out of that and decided to hunker down in Enneagram. So I got certified. Well, I'm a five, as you know, and I have mastered the uh, hiding techniques of a five, you know, stay. Mm. So Mm. I know I had a private practice. I stayed in my little room. I worked, it was great work, but I knew I was no good at really talking with big groups, big, big groups. And I knew, I knew why, Uh, uh, because of my Enneagram work, my personal Enneagram work, I knew about all that. Uh, I knew I needed to get better at it. So I I approached um, a woman I knew who was really a great speaker to ask if she could kind of help me know how to speak to people without sending daggers. That's what I would do, send daggers. She said, well, what do you want to talk about? I said, I want to talk about the Enneagram. She was uh, the executive director to a workforce development program who received uh, clients from the Department of Social Services in exchange for their benefits. They had to work, and she worked with those people trying uh, training them to be more successful in work situations. So she said, uh, how about you come and train my people, and I will watch you, and we'll have a win-win here. So thus, I mean, I had nothing in my head about bringing the Enneagram to this population at that point. And so it was really fun work. It was amazing. It really required me to do a lot of this changing of making things practical, straightforward. So, and then just the effect it made for people to to come to this place where, oh my gosh, I have something. This is a population that has been directly or indirectly told, you have nothing and we don't need you here. To hear, I have something and it's uh, something that other people don't have and I can offer it and it's worthy and it's worthwhile and I can contribute But then I see these ways I get in my way. The other thing that was really cool for them is to realize, I call the Enneagram the great equalizer because to realize that these other people that you think have it all, they struggle too. And uh, a lot of times we get their defense, not their um, strength. So that it just was a real eye opener for them, and they—it was the beginning of them really stepping into themselves and being behind themselves. That's great. You mentioned needing to change some language and approach things a little differently. What what does that mean, and how does that work for you? Well, uh, for starters, I changed. Um, You know how the Enneagram kind of points out these two places for us, uh, where we come with our best and where we come with not our our worst or, you know, and I created the language um, that the one was the gift, our gift, our gift to the world, what we have to offer. And then the other side of that, our defensive strategy. And I um, really did a lot of work, and I'm guessing that some of this came from my my work as a therapist, the idea that I, I set the scene of, like, this is a gift you have, but then when it comes to, and I set up 
being seen and belonging as our human needs, our basic human needs, mm. and outline that a bit. But when that doesn't happen, we have to protect ourselves. And what do we do to protect ourselves? We create defense that is mm. logical and needed. And we, but we use this gift that we have to kind of create that defense. And I sort of say like, if you were given wood, you'd make your house out of wood. If you were given stone, you would make your house out of stone. So it's like the, they kind of pair together and then talk about the personality. I do that differently too. I talk about personality as these two things operating together, gift and defensive strategy, that we always have them. We always will have them. And it's just about proportion. How do we want to, you know, mm. what do we need to lead with? Uh, because, you know, that I just think that's the reality. Not yeah. like I'm either yeah, in one or the other. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple things. Mario, why don't you give us a quick, quick ATA explanation of the five? So the five is what we call striving to feel detached. And it's interesting. This is, this is one of the words that I get some pushback on um, when it comes to the names of the strategies and perhaps more than... Uh, some of the other words, because to some people it sounds negative, right? It's only negative when it's being done in a maladaptive way. But the reality is, is that life requires emotional detachment for all of us, right? We have to be able to step back from our reactivity. We have to be able to step back and observe ourselves. Uh, we have to be able to step back and detach ourselves from our thoughts, Okay, so we can analyze them effectively. So, so detachment is a required element of existence. Uh, the Buddhists would refer to it as non-attachment, right? That's generally considered sort of the, the healthier or more enlightened version. And a pathological detachment can be negative as well. But that just goes back to the idea that all of these strategies are value neutral and we either use them adaptively or maladaptively. So for me, what captures the heart of what's going on for the type five is this desire to put a buffer between themselves and the emotional messiness of life, right? I just want to, I just want a little space, okay? So I don't feel overwhelmed by it. So I don't feel too impacted by it. And of course, that can also mean that I don't engage with it in the way that I should. So striving to feel detached is kind of the fundamental feeling. Now, a lot of times people talk about fives in terms of intelligence, right? In terms of being the investigator, in terms of being the, you know, the professor, the analytical and so forth. And with all due respect to my five friends, I've met some fives who aren't all that bright and aren't all that you know, inquisitive and aren't investigators. So I think that that is a secondary characteristic. Much like when we talked about the two, we talked about how helping is not the fundamental need. The need to be uh, connected is the fundamental need and helping is a way to do that. And for fives, the investigation, the thinking and so forth are ways also to support that feeling of detachment. Now, they're not detached all the time, and I certainly don't want to say that fives are not compassionate, they're not kind, they're not funny. Uh, they are. Uh, there, there are many fives who are very warm, sweet, tender people, 
And it comes with this slight tone of detachment to it, right? This slight little bit of distance. Uh, in fact, I've often heard fives talk about how it's not that they don't feel emotions, but sometimes they almost feel like they're so emotional inside that if they let go and let their emotions come forward, it would almost feel like an explosion, something uncontrollable. So the work of the five is to learn to, to release that to, in a controlled, consistent, managed way, right? Rather than kind of keep it bottled up and then explode, but learn to learn how to kind of work the valve of emotion as they grow. And also to engage in the world, right? Because fives, again, can step back from the world and not engage with it. Uh, which, again, is one of the things that I like so much about the work that Sally is doing and um, that it's it's about going out into the world and the, the messy part of the world, too, right? Not the clean, esalen, you know, uh, or retreat center uh, sort of the world, but, you know, the, the world is a real place. So, Sally, why don't you tell us how you discovered the Enneagram and your type and if you resonate with these words, detachment, that we use? I discovered the Enneagram back in 2000 because someone told me about it. And over the years, you know, explored it through books, through some uh, workshops, mostly with Riso Hudson, Helen Palmer, David Daniels, Jerry Wagner sort of stuff. You know, that I, you know, how did I discover the five? Well, it just, it sounded like me. I, I identified with it. And how, how do I respond to what Mario's saying? Yes, 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 yes. Can you remember some of the things that you said? Okay, this is really me. And this explains why I do this or I do that. Do you have any memories of that? The holding back, the hiding of a five, big time. The solving of un uncomfortable emotional moments by holding back, by hiding, um, as opposed to entering into them. Um, the analyzing, the um, kind of staying in my head. Um, you know, as I said, I was a counselor. Uh, did a, I was a therapist. And, you know, I could work with people and they're dealing with lots of stuff. And and I'm just there, you know, I'm there, I'm listening, I'm dealing, I'm, we're net, you know, I'm navigating in it. Uh, it's, it's like a puzzle and I'm, I'm having a good time here in a sense. And then once it's over, you know, people will say, how do you carry all that stuff? And, and I don't carry it, you know, I just, I don't. <laughs> so it's not like I'm indifferent, but it's, I'm just approaching it as, this is the situation, and we're going to figure this out. So you can, you know, the head. And, and yeah. I think that's the beauty of what the five strategy brings, right? I mean, it's this ability to, to step yeah. back. And, yeah. I, you know, I always, you know, I, I love having fives around, because, around me. I always admire their roles in organizations that I work with because they give that sort of unvarnished, objective feedback and objective analysis of, you know, well, here's the way it is. And you might not like this, and I might not like it either, but it is what it is. 
And I I think that's a tremendous quality. It always makes me think of Mr. Spock from Star Trek, right? Uh, You know, uh, Captain Kirk was the more emotional character. And Mr. Spock was the one who would step back and give perspective. And and I think fives do that in a wonderful way. And it allows them to have a really huge impact on the world because they don't get sidetracked by the messy emotions. Mm. So, you know, just to kind of highlight on that, I, I would always say a yucky truth is better than a sweet lie. Like, I want the truth. Mm. And I, and, and yes. soft peddling or trying to, you know, work with the truth and make it a little more palatable, that's not helpful. I think that's uh, an area of great overlap between the eight and the five. And I think that the eight and the five, particularly what I see in organizations, make a really powerful combination that way because they both share that that quality of, you know, wanting the truth in a way that's, uh, even if it's painful, right? Um, but the five is able to give perspective uh, in the face of the emotionality or the sometime emotionality and impulsiveness of the eight. Sally, in your work, in in the language that you use with like the gift and the defense strategy, um, what what's the language that you use with the five? Well, the, that their gift is, um, and they're coming from a place of detachment, but their gift is just to to notice, to notice things. They're, they're noticers. How mm-hmm. you know? That's kind of like they're scanners and they're noticing how this connects to that and that connects to here. And because they want to understand, they like want to put the package together. And so that's the gift. The, the, the defensive strategy is hiding. Like it's, it's being concerned uh, how y'all will take what I offer. And so uh, I'm going to get ahead of that possibility that you might not take it well by not even telling you. Mm-hmm. So I will withhold. And um, yeah. so that's kind of like how I set it up generally. And how has like working with the awareness to action approach influenced how you teach? Um, what, what has been helpful within this model? So many things. Um I mean, I, I could list them. Well, one, uh, I I love how they talk about the instinctual biases. They've they've redeemed instinctual biases. They they put that word on it, but mm. instincts for me, they've made them usable, understandable. Like it's a system. I love the system, hmm. and as opposed to individual, like what twenty seven individual subtypes, they. They have like two things coming together, you know, and then you figure out, you see how they relate. So the type and the instinctual mm-hmm. bias coming together. Um, I think they put better words on it, um, more practical words. It's You can feel it happening. I love their accelerators. I love the work that they do. Uh, you know, in, in the training program that I'm putting together, I talk about the types. I talk about lots of things, but then I... I have this big section, the work, the idea that this all, all this Enneagram stuff, this is for work that we do. This is for change that we grow into. And it, so it's the, I think the ATA is very work oriented 
in terms of, okay, what can now, what can you do now? And I, I think the Enneagram is made for that as well. So, so the accelerators, the, the way that they look at the arrows is, is um, just more work-oriented focused so sally uh by the way it was my idea to get you on the program on the podcast oh uh, wow <laughs> if you were wondering who to love more thank you <laughs> yes <laughs> she had she had to browbeat me into it sally i, I was thinking eh. no. no she no. did it was her idea and i thought it was a brilliant idea but it was maria jose's yes so your preferred strategy is striving to feel detached can you share with us uh, some ways in which you see it expressing in yourself in maladaptive ways and in adaptive mm -hmm. ways? In mm -hmm. adaptive ways. So both maladaptive and maladaptive. Did I say maladaptive and maladaptive? Okay, you really maladaptive wanted me to tell you about the maladaptive ways. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want both. I'm just on vacation um, yeah. and I get confused. <laughs> So adaptive ways is just to see, see, to be unattached to how to maybe uh, forces that would want me to deliver something a little more palatable. So like the idea that I can, I want to know the truth about something. Now the and I'll just say, and the maladaptive way right there is that I will strangle people for the truth. You know, I have to get it. And now that's a bit of an attachment there. <laughs> that's taking it too far. <laughs> so there you have it. There you have both. And the idea of detached, you know, I can listen to someone, uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, I listened to this podcast, Hidden Brain, and they, they do a lot of things about human interaction. And they, he talked about people who do poison control, you know, hello, I'll help you with your poison control concern. Those people, they have to be like, they can't be excited, you know, they have to stay on task. You say, I I'm one of those people. Now, the detachment can go too far, as you said, and someone can be looking at me like, why are you holding up under all this emotional horribleness, you know, like, are you inhuman? Like, so that can come across. I'm not intending to be inhuman, but it can look like that to someone who is in the emotionality of it. And I actually, it, as Mario said, I am emotional. That's true. That's true. I'm emotional. I care. But this is how I care. I care to help us navigate through it. Hmm. So, so tell me more about the, what happens when you don't get the full truth. What's the risk? What's your inner dialogue? What's the risk of not getting the whole truth? I have had to work with myself big time on this one. Because you, the truth is you can't get the whole truth. I mean, truth is a thing that is unfolding, you know. We, you know, even 10 years ago, we didn't know what we know today. And 20 years from now, we're going to know more. So it's just like, that's the way it is. So it's kind of like saying that to myself in this moment. 
this person, I, I remember very distinctly a situation where there was someone who absolutely had something going on that was manifesting in the situation. So she was in charge of something. She was putting the kibosh to it, but she wasn't going to say that out loud, but it's going to be, it's going to happen, but I'm not going to say that that's what's going to happen. And I just wanted her to say it. Just tell me, we're going to put the kibosh to this. Well, she couldn't say that for her own reasons, for her own issues. So my strangling her to get that out of her was not going to happen. So uh, uh, things like that have taught me that I can let things go. I can knock on a door. I can ask. And maybe no one's home. So I got to go on. And and it's going to be okay. So that's the... That's the detachment coming into play again. I can be detached from this getting settled. I, for one, would like the truth about what the definition of the word kibosh is. Ooh, (laughs) kibosh. That means, (laughs) well, well, how did I say it? Uh, I can't remember. Putting the kibosh on on something? Oh, putting the kibosh on something. That means... (laughs) Is is that a word you're not familiar with, Creek? (laughs) I've never heard of it. You've never heard that? Oh, no. no. Me neither. Well, I thought well, it was just me. <laughs> it's a generational it's, it's, thing, Sally. It's, yeah, it's because we're too young. We're too young, Creek. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, that's that's the reason. I, I'm going to have to look at the etymology of that one at some point. You, you know, um, used to see it in movies in the 20s, you know, when they would uh, <laughs> talk about that, you know, when they'd be doing the Charleston. It's a word I use, too, so I'm not, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, not is it K-Y-B-O-S-H? I've never written I've only said it. I've never written it. Nobody ever writes it. Yeah, nobody ever writes it. You only say it. It's unknown. Many people think it's Yiddish, used in Irish neighborhoods in the 1800s. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I come from Irish people. It's to shut something down, to put the kibosh on it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, kibosh, kibosh, you your... say kibosh, you say kibosh. Yeah. Uh, Mario, could you give us just a quick overview of the connecting points of point five? Yeah, so, so, so the five connects to points eight and point seven. And as we've talked about with all the types here, we go both directions in positive and negative ways. But when it comes to the terminology, we tend to refer to the uh, more negative ways of it. And um, so for the five, point eight, striving to feel powerful, it's what we call a neglected strategy. And it's not that fives can't be powerful people, right? There are a lot of powerful fives in the world. Bill Gates is a great example, Warren Buffett, etc. I could go on. But they hold back their energetic kind of visceral power, right? By by detaching from it, okay? So their, their, their expression of power can be aloof and cold at times or remote or just highly objective, okay? Uh, when it comes to point seven, that's what we call a support strategy. And so the five will, again, use it in both ways, but under stress or in their less, you know, in their, in their lesser moments, they will use excitement to actually reinforce their distance from things. They'll get excited about ideas, for example. They'll get excited about abstractions. They'll get excited about facts. 
anything that sort of takes them a little bit further away from emotion. Okay, so it can be a uh, support strategy in a negative way that way and reinforce the detachment. I've seen fives use that striving to feel powerful by like using their knowledge to eviscerate people. Would that, would that fall in that? It does. And in fact, that's what we call the contradiction, right? The, the contradiction mm. is reserve versus hostility. Okay? When they're tapping into that eightness or that eight strategy in a maladaptive way, it comes across as anger and aggression and hostility. And it can be verbal hostility, right? It can be demeaning, condescending, and, and so forth. Or it can be something even worse, right? Uh, we, for our Enneagram in a Movie podcast uh, recently, shameless plug, uh, we were talking about Bond villains. And the majority of them seem to be fives. Right? So when you, when you look at them. So it's really interesting that sort of one of the archetypal villain is the five who uses their superior insight and intelligence to do evil in the world. Or they can do great good, like Sally. Yeah, I, right. I remember when the PRISM project started and we had some people invited to the conference and one of them, I don't remember his name, was he was a five and he was explaining how for him it was almost like a challenge to get a bank robbed and he succeeded in and it was kind of like a puzzle to solve and to make sure that he was able to do that. It was like a big thing, but it was all like this challenge in his mind on how to do it well. Sally, how do you see the, the connecting points for you? Like where, where do they show up adaptively and maladaptively? First of all, with eight, I mean, I totally get this idea of neglecting the power available to me within me just avoiding it or being very unskilled in using it. And so that, and that's what you're, he's, Mario's talking about when he says being aggressive in it, you know, using it aggressively, using it to distance myself. It's interesting. It's, it's, it, you know, why I use it as a five is to distance myself from you and me by saying, I think this and you think that, or there's a distance. Um, so there's always mm. that kind of detachment that is always going on, you know, manifesting itself in a mm. thousand different ways. But yeah, to, as opposed to using it well or using it more skillfully, like to show up when I use it poorly, I'm protecting myself. When I'm using it well, I'm being with you. I'm coming out of my shell or whatever, and I'm showing up. So that's much more vulnerable than, you know, distancing myself and saying, I, you don't know what you're talking about or however you aren't doing what you should, you know, so however I might want to use it. Mm -hmm. So I, I see that real uh, blatantly in my life and really... I lean into noticing what eights do because they have this idea of, they have this ability to be in the world in a way that I totally need to take in and see. 
What does this look like? What's an example of a way in which you give up on your power? I give up my power by just not showing up, not not saying what I think, not being present with people. I mean, power, as Mario always says, is is the ability to accomplish something, get something done. So if I don't even show up, I'm not using any power. Nothing's going to happen. So I might have some interesting ideas. I might have a, a way of looking at something. I might have a noticing of something, you know, uh, but if I don't say it, I'm not showing up. I'm not doing mm-hmm. anything with it. So okay. that's an example. And uh, what about point seven? Um, so seven, I think of sevens, um, you know, I think of sevens as idea people and seeing possibilities, but also not coping well with uh, a stop sign or something like that, you know, like uh, limits. And so I see that in myself. I see on the negative side, I can, I can easily get discouraged. Like, and, and this is another working part for me. Like I have to work at recognizing that I can work through difficulty. I don't have to just, again, leave. Um, I can be present to difficulties and figure out how we're going to work through this. Like, and these would be more my difficulties, not your difficulties, my difficulties. So just recognizing that there's also limits, limit in time. Like what Marie Jose was saying, like, it might not be resolved today. So stay in there, stay connected, stay with it. Uh, So when it comes to the connecting points, um, we end up with a contradiction, which we we already talked about this reserve versus hostility, right? So sometimes, sometimes the five doesn't even seem like they're there. They're in the room, but you can't feel their presence. And other times it's they're they're the bond villain or or, or something, right? Uh, So we do see that contradictory quality. And then there's this entrenched attitude when they're caught in this dysfunctional relationship with the strategy of point seven. And we call that the information blizzard, uh, where a way of kind of coping with the world is just by throwing information at it, right? They've absorbed all this information and now they start regurgitating it very often. I remember one time seeing a uh, presentation by a, uh, a friend of mine who was a five, and he was talking about a particular consulting methodology. And he pulls up a slide, and it looked like the New York City subway station, right? I mean, he was tracking relationships mm. in this organization. And it was, it was just, you know, I looked at this slide, and, and everybody in the room went, oh, my goodness, um, you know, are, are we going to, you know, be overwhelmed by this? Mm. And he said, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to go through this whole thing. And then he proceeded to go through the whole thing, right? And, <laughs> you know, and so... Which is, it probably and, wasn't the whole thing, right? but it seemed like it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and in fairness, I did end up leaving partway through. But um, so I, I don't know how much further he went. But it, there is just this, you know, and I see this with fives very often of, I have all this information and it's going to go out there because I get excited about it. 
right? It's it's really, really exciting to fives, and they want to share that. Um, so that's the uh, what we call the entrenched attitude. Sally, how do you see that showing up? Well, I would say that is really true. I mean, so I'm I'm creating this uh, training thing, <laughs> and you know, you can have. It's been a real work to just like pull it back, pull it back, just give this much information. That is enough. And a lot of times, you know, you're giving more information to, to, to kind of, you're, there's, there's um, these people in your head and you're speaking to them, you know, you're proving it to them. And so you got to give this and you got to give that and you, you know, and then you get, there's just too much. So pull it back, be simple, be clear. You can always build in conversation, but teaching too much is too much. So that absolutely is a temptation um, to really drill down into something and you get lost. Uh, Your people get lost, you're talking to. It makes me think of the books of Ken Wilber, for example, right? I mean, a lot of people think highly of Ken Wilber and I just, I just want to shoot myself when I start reading his stuff. I just, you know, I, I, it's, there, there's a great short fragment uh, by the, uh, the, the writer Borges called the, the map, the size of the, the kingdom, something like that. And he talks about, you know, somebody who created a map the size of a kingdom and how utterly useless it is. Because it's not distilled, it's too much, right? And so mm-hmm. when we see these cosmological maps, they become just overwhelming for people. And they actually, in a sense, retard action and progress yeah. because yeah. I'm too busy trying to master the, the complexity of the system to be able to actually get out there and put it to work. I couldn't help... Thinking about this information blizzard and how it may look different for different subtypes of the five, like a different tone, but also different topics. How for a transmitter will be different than from a navigator and preserver. It has maybe it's kind of, I don't know, louder and more intense from a transmitter than from a preserver, for example. I just, I know we're going to cover the different subtypes, but I think that they look very different. Yeah, I would, I would have to say that true. Because as I am thinking about all these things I want to say, I'm also uh, factoring in the, the group and how is this going to affect the group and how the group sees me and and how I see the group. And so that that's going to monitor me or, or help me hold it back for reasons that somebody else may not have. Speaking of blizzards, it, it's, it just started blizzard blizzarding outside my window and it's quite beautiful. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess it's the motivation behind the blizzard. Um. <laughs> What's driving the blizzard? <laughs> What's driving the blizzard? I'll just touch on Mariose's point there that, yes, there is a difference in the way these things manifest themselves with the navigating five like Sally. There is this consideration of the group and this hesitancy. It's almost like there are these two things pulling against each other. I've got all these things to say, but should I say them or not? The preserving five is kind of the 
the stereotype of the five, the more reserved, the quieter one, but get them talking about something in the preserving domain and they'll go on for days. Right? And uh, the transmitting five is the classic where, you know, it's going to come out. They just love talking and teaching and, you know, showing off what it is they have to say. Um, and, and I don't mean showing off necessarily in a pejorative way. I mean, sometimes it's in a very, in a really good way. And I remember once having a client who was a transmitting five, and he was a great guy, and he was one of these guys that everybody went to when they had a question about something. But they would always say, I don't have time to ask him a question right now because uh. <laughs> it's a fairly simple question, but I know I'm going to get a 30-minute response. And so I have to wait until I have, his name wasn't Joe, but I'll, you know, they, I'll, I'll call it Joe time, right? Because that's what they would say, because I just know I'm going to get all this information from a simple question. Sometimes we get some resistance to the word detachment from thought, right? Yes. And I was thinking that maybe for a navigating thought who is kind of a bit, I mean, all navigators withdraw in some way and detach or kind of observe, whereas preservers are more attached to certain things, their safety, their security, those things, and transmitters are more intensively kind of not attaching, but creating bonds with people, which might make them resonate less with the word detachment. You want me Any to say something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I do kind of. So I'm, I'm just thinking of those spaces. And as a five, I, I would say to a transmitting five, like kind of like let's be honest here you you are detached <laughs> you are and that's okay and and that's the problem is that it does have a bad rap uh for some people but you're you're connecting you're bonding because you got something you want to do and you're focused on that and there is a detachment kind of a, a loyalty and attachment to that, what you want to do. That's the truth. And, and then to a preserver to say, you are focused in on this thing. And in your focus in on it, whatever you're, you're talking about, whatever you're caring about, you are not focused on anything else. Like you are drilled into this. So there is that detachment from as um, you hunker down in what you want to do and that's okay it's it's just it's in service to what you want to do or what you want to say or what you're caring about mm -hmm. there is a there's a it's because of the bad rap like that means you don't you don't care about anything but you do you're you're focused on what you care about. Yes, on occasion we get some pushback from fives. I actually find we get pushback on the term from people who are not fives. 
Yeah, um, very often. I believe that. Right, and um, because and all these words are loaded, right? And not all they're not all as loaded as others, but we get some of the same issues around the idea of striving to feel powerful, right? There's no better descriptor of what's going on inside of an eight, but the word power is loaded in some environments and in some cultures. Okay, so people bring baggage to it, and I find you know quite frequently. People will say to me, oh, I'm not striving to feel powerful. And then when I say, you know, as Sally pointed out, well, power is just the capacity to produce a result. They say, oh, well, that's me, right? And so we we, we can get loaded by that. I'll share a quick story. I was friends with uh, Liz Waggley, who wrote The Enneagram mm. Made Easy and a bunch of other books. And she was a real the sweetheart. The Enneagram of Death. The, the, the Enneagram of Death, yes, <laughs> which is available on Amazon. I have two chapters in it. And... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Liz was very much, she was a preserving five, and she was very much a five, very quiet, very cerebral, very internal. And when she read my book, she sends me an email, and she says, uh, uh, she says, I, I, I have a quibble with your terminology about point five. And I assumed she was talking about the word detachment. I said, okay, well, I'd love to hear your point. And she, she writes me this long email and it's all about the five's need to feel emotionally distant from things and to be removed and all this other sort of stuff. And I wrote back to her. I said, Liz, you know, thank you for this feedback. But it sounds to me like you're just using other words to describe detachment. And she said, oh, I don't have a problem with the word detachment. I have a problem with the word striving to feel. We just are mm. detached. Right? So... <laughs> uh, <you> know, so <laughs> <laughs> so that's only yeah, I, one anecdotal data point, but mm -hmm. yeah. I, I I will pick up on her, you know, her issues there because that was a hard thing for me with the um, awareness to action, the striving to feel, and exactly that. Um, I'm not striving to feel detached. I, I that's where I come from in a sense. I. Mm -hmm. When I get I what I would call more in my defensive strategy, I am striving to feel detached. You know, I am working at it. So um, yeah. I, I, that's what I – but I've adjusted to that terminology, you know, as I get what you're saying. And, and, and that is a good point. It's, it's, it's a you know, good opportunity to reinforce this idea that we don't get up in the morning and say, okay, I have to strive to be – whatever it is today. Creek doesn't get up and say, I have to strive to feel unique or Mario's I have to strive to feel perfect. It's just it's just what we do. And yeah. most of that striving is not conscious. And we're most uh, we're most aware of it when we're not feeling this thing that we want yeah. to feel. So we start mm -hmm. acting in a way that gets yeah. us back to it. Right. Yes. You know, I, I always like the analogy of the elephant and the rider. And the elephant will go where the rider wants it to go as long as all of its needs are met, right? It's got a full belly, you know, it's it's happy, it's warm, whatever it is it's looking for. But it's when it's not getting its needs met that it starts to, you know, act out. And that's when it tramples the village, okay? And that's how we all are. When mm. I feel powerful or feel detached or feel perfect, everything's fine. That's what I want. And I don't even notice it. It's when I mm. don't feel it that I start to act out. Mm. Right. 
So one of the last subjects we want to hit is the subtypes of the five. Uh, Mario, can you give us a quick explanation of those three? Sure. So again, we have, as Sally said earlier, we have these two elements that come together, right? We don't see these as independent characters in any way, you know, whole characters. We see it as the interplay between a, an instinctual bias and a strategy. So for the preserving five, it's somebody who gets their preserving needs met by striving to feel detached. So this is the classic five. You know, this is the five that we see in the literature about somebody who's more withdrawn, who's more reserved, who's not put, you know, uh, impacting on the world. They kind of go inward as a way to get their needs met. Very often they're minimalists in a way, but can also be hoarders. And I know that's a weird contradiction but they tend to hoard specific things that they might want. They're very conscious and methodical about resources. And um, sometimes that's, you know, I have just exactly enough of what I need and therefore I am not causing myself any, uh, you know, uh, undue stress or undue burden of being in the world. So it's a, you know, more cerebral withdrawal from the world sort of way. But again, not somebody who can't have an impact in the world. If you ever uh, watch documentaries about Warren Buffett, for example, he's a preserving five, right? But he goes, you know, out into the world and does big things. The navigating five, navigating five is a little bit tricky because they don't always seem like fives. They're often mistaken for nines in my experience because they have a sort of a, a softer and more consensus-oriented attitude than the preserving five does. So they're a little bit less guarded in some ways as um, the preserving five might be. So still very much a five, but it's a plotting of the chessboard of the group, right? It's about sitting back and looking at where all the pieces are and understanding them and figuring them out. And it's a little bit about moving them around, but it's more about understanding the chessboard than it is about playing chess in, in many ways. Okay? The transmitting five, this is the most contradictory of characters because they have this part that wants to transmit stuff, right? Wants to transmit ideas. They can be more expressive, more outgoing, more talkative than the other fives for sure, just like transmitters tend to be, but they are still striving to feel detached. So they often take the role of the lecturer or the teacher or the instructor or the intellectual show off in some cases, you know, look how smart I am. And then there'll be this weird moment where the curtain falls, right? So they've been on stage, they've been talking, they've been engaging. And then all of a sudden, in the blink of the eye, it's like they've disappeared, right? And they're right in front the of you. It's the Batman character. It's the Batman character, right? It's like, where, where, where did he go, right? Uh, I see his body sitting right there, but, you mm. know, the, but the person has left the building. So um, it, it's this really interesting on and off switch that can occur. I've seen a lot of transmitting fives who are entertainers, right? Who like to be entertainers, musicians, mm. singers, talk show hosts. I actually wonder if David Letterman's a transmitting five. I'm not positive, um, but it fits with that, you know, on-off sort of quality. Well, so I have a, I have a, a small, maybe not so small, uh, off-topic question that I'm, I'd be curious to get your perspective on. Being that you, you've been a, a therapist, a counselor, 
and that you're still doing work in that area. Uh, from your perspective, what have you seen to be um, maybe to be the most detrimental or the most concerning thing in the Enneagram community um, from your perspective as a therapist? Mm, well, um, the negative bent that I think um, I hear too much of in um, almost taking pot shots at the types and done in a way that is very coming from a very stereotypical sense of the type, uh, not a very broad, deep sense of the type. So just finding fault. And it's so fascinating because here I am finding fault with, or, or um, kind of being condescending when I talk about a type, that's kind of how you find it happening and and where here I am as in my type, you know, kind of judging and missing the beauty of that type, what they offer, it feels or it doesn't feel very enneagramish. I think of enneagram as this like gathering tool that says, you know, there's there's nine people at this table and they are rocking and rolling. There's something here that I don't have, that you have. And this is nice. This is like the package that we need, so to speak. You know, it represents all that we offer. And um, I don't think it's helpful to be uh, under underestimating what is helpful here by taking what I might say pot shots at people that really aren't very accurate, for starters, and feel more like I'm just defending myself as I do this. So that's mm. one thing that I see. So, so you're saying it's it, it's being taking pot shots and being negative about the type just for the sake of it, without actually seeing what's behind it and the the strength that is involved in, in that sort of strategy. Yes, and and seeing. It, uh, seeming to see, I don't know what the person's thinking in their head, but seeming to see the type just very narrowly, you know, like typically fives, they don't feel anything. Like, why would you say that about any human being? Of course we feel things, you know, yeah. I, I don't even get why we go there. You know, we're, we're hmm. pretty much more, more like each other than we aren't in a sense. So yeah, just narrowing the gap of what someone is artificially. This is another pet peeve. I have, um, my husband is a, a one. And so he, he gets any a thought, you know, in his, any a thought. And I, I had him tell me this today. Cause he said this, that they said to him, you're part of the frustration based group. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, another, Another, I don't know, another threesome here. Like, what in the world? Like, and that, I feel like for people who are new to the Enneagram, or I don't know what, but like, oh, frustration group. Who's in the frustration group? And uh, am I in the frustration group? And I'm thinking, we're all frustrated. We, we get frustrated. Mm -hmm. We do it differently with it, but like, I don't like all the, 
triads out the wazoo. There's another word for your mm-hmm. for your out yeah, the wazoo. What's the one? <laughs> I do know that one. What's the, what's the etymology of that one, Greek? Well, <laughs> Please hold. <laughs> I think, I, I feel uh, like all of this categorization and labeling is a great way to stay away from the work. And I think it's about the work. No, that's, that's really great. I, I love that. Uh, look, I, I think a lot of the Enneagram literature is written by fives and other uh, <laughs> types that are you know, not as outward in their interactions with the world. And so now, of course, that's contradictory because Sally is a five pointing out her frustration with that, right? But I think that some of the negative tendencies that can be associated with that strategy of this sort of world building, right, that can occur of this, you know, creating of these one-to-one scale maps. And the more I can explain the better off I am. When the reality is, is that, you know, sometimes you just need to pick up a broom and sweep the floor, right? If you want to get something done. Um, in in Zen Buddhism, there's a saying that if you want to be enlightened, just sit up straight and breathe. And in 20 years of hard work, you'll be enlightened. But it's not more complicated than that. So I, mm. I really appreciate what you're saying there, um, Sally, that um, we can make things too complicated. Um, and for those who are wondering, wazoo... <laughs> It's a term coined in 1961, a magazine at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, it is a person's buttocks. <laughs> out, out the wazoo. No. Whoa, I don't know. I'm getting, that's too, too graphic for me. Uh. <laughs> um, anyway, Sally, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. It's, it's a real pleasure and um, thanks for showing up. It's great to have you, Sally. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 